Is that all we have? That's it, I believe? Yes. All right, so we're continuing in our series on Rooted from Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. In all the years that I've been a high school pastor, I have seen this pattern play out over and over again. One of the biggest reasons that people leave the church is because, especially at your age, is because of relationships that go bad. When community goes south, that's when people check out of relationship and check out of the body of Christ. In fact, most of the time, whenever I talk to a student, if there's a student that I haven't seen around here in a while, I'll say, hey, how are you doing? Um, what's going on? Are you okay? And, and at times, I'll get like the first reason that they give which is something like more superficial or something a bit more uh, maybe surfacy, But then when you really cut to the chase and get behind that first reason, almost always there's another reason. And it usually is because of relationships have gone bad, um, friendships have soured, and they have pulled away from the body of Christ as a result of that. I'm not casting judgment or condemnation. I'm just telling you what I've seen in the time that I've been a high school pastor and um, this is going to be the temptation for many of you, especially as you guys graduate, seniors. Your temptation is going to be to pull away from the body of Christ when things aren't going the way that you think they should go. In fact, um, I think that the person that was most instrumental in my life in showing me how devoted and committed we should be to the body of Christ is my youth pastor, a guy named Rob Wetzel. I've got a picture of him and his wife. This is a current uh, photo of them. But he came to our church, and he's about 25, 26 years old. And he actually went to the same school that uh, Tim Curry went to, Liberty University in Virginia. And this is my youth pastor. And, um, and I had him all the way from freshman year all the way to my senior year. But something happened during my senior year that I'll never forget. My church just went into chaos. I grew up in this church. And um, just the, the senior pastor had, was at odds with him and also the worship minister, and so he had a vendetta against these two, and so he basically asked for the resignation, which they said, we're not going to give that because we don't think we need to leave this church. We feel called to this church, and so at that point, chaos ensued where the church brings in an outside consultant to say, hey, what should we do to resolve some of these differences? This consultant, after months of interviews and crying and talking and meetings and so on, this consultant's recommendation was, I recommend that all the pastors leave. And so we're faced with this decision as a church. The, the kind of church we went to was a church where the congregation gets to make these really important decisions, which I do not recommend always. And, uh, and so this thing went to a vote where the congregation, one Sunday at a business meeting, had a card that said, do you vote yes on the resolution or no on the resolution? Meaning, are you going to vote all your pastors out the door or vote for all of them to stay? It's an all-or-nothing deal. And as an 18-year-old kid, I'm sitting there with the card in my hand just, like, weeping at what this has come to. I've got the power to fire my youth pastor, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't check yes, so I checked no because I was willing to put up with the dysfunction of the other pastors in order to keep my youth pastor. But the sad thing is, I was in the minority that day. 
and everybody was voted out of my church as a pastor. So there's that awkward few months afterwards where they're all still working there, but everyone knows they're, they're a lame duck, and they're out the door. And so for a few months, um, Rob began to share with me, once he was finally let go, he began to share with me just kind of the ins and outs of these meetings he was a part of, and deacons and people like that that were just really after him. Not in a, he wasn't telling me this in a, he's just letting me know, hey, look, in spite of all that, Dave, I would still be committed to the church. And he went through all of that, and he went to, he's been, he's been, he's worked at other churches as well and done very well there. But this guy right here has shown me what it means. He's still committed to a church now. He is still in part of the body of Christ. He's still part of community in spite of what they did to him. He's the kind of person that would have, you would think would say, you know what, forget church. I'm going to bail on the whole thing. I'll start my own thing. But he realized something, and it says that you've got to stay rooted in community. And you can't let the chaos and drama and sin of the church keep you from the body of Christ. You can't do it. You've got to stay rooted in community. And this is the kind of attitude that every single one of us is going to need as we live out our, our lives with Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And I'll read the whole passage first, and we'll kind of go bit by bit here. Verse 12, it says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to look closely at verse 12, where it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. One thing you'll realize when Paul addresses people in these letters, he always talks more about who they are before he says what they're supposed to do. He always talks about identity before he talks about activity. And here he does it again. He says, you are God's chosen ones. You are holy and beloved. These are words that talk about who someone is, their identity. This is identity. And as a result of that, now here's what I want you to do. Be a person of compassion. Be a person of kindness. Be a person who's humble. Be a person who's meek. Be a patient person. When people walk in the doors of the outback, what kind of people do they see here? Do they see people of compassion, people of kindness, humble people, meek people, patient people? What do they see when they walk in these doors with us. The church is supposed to be a different kind of community than what you see out there in the world, but so often people find greater acceptance, greater love, greater compassion outside the church than they find inside the church. And many of you have felt this. You have seen this firsthand. When Paul uses the word compassionate hearts, uh, what's interesting is that in the Greek the word for heart actually means bowels, your intestines. And so think about that for a minute. 
In our culture, we connect emotion to the heart. In Greek culture, they connect emotion to the intestines. So imagine that on Valentine's Day, right? You get a card, like, what is that on the front of this card? Is that a large intestine? What is that? And so, but when you think about this, like, what they're, what they're implying is, is that these emotions come from deep within us. So for us, we say heart. For back then, for the Greek culture, it was the bowels. And what, the, what they mean by that is, is that you should not just be a person who does compassionate things. Listen, listen. You should not be a person who just, who just does compassionate things. You should be a compassionate person. Like in your, in your bowels, in your heart, in your inner person, you should be this kind of person. This is who you are. This is who you're supposed to be. And so it's not just a checklist. Like I've got a goal of being compassionate. Check. I did that. I did that activity. But it's in your heart of hearts, in your deepest emotions, that you have compassion on people. So when people walk in this building, do they, do they see people like this? Do they see people that have hearts of compassion? Do they see a certain compassion here that they don't see anywhere else in our world? When you look at the ministry of Christ, Jesus' ministry was characterized by this compassion. In fact, in the Gospels, it often says things like, when Jesus sees a crowd, it says, he was moved with compassion on the crowd. I know most of us think of Jesus like he was some like, emotionally detached, robotic miracle worker, right? That's how we envision him, like walking around just expressionless, emotionless, just bing, bing, right? Just healing people, just doing miracles. But this is not who Jesus was. Jesus was compassionate. He was moved with compassion. And this is why he did the miracles that he did that we see in the Gospels. Something else you see from this list, the rest of the list says things like kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Many of these words, when we hear these words in our culture, we think of weakness, don't we? I mean, even the word meekness rhymes with it, so it kind of makes a, there's a connection there. But when you think of these words, most of us think of someone who's just weak. They're just kind of there. They're like wallpaper, right? They're not really, they're not a true person. And I think most of us in our culture, we think of this is weak. It's weak to be this way. But I want to let you know that each one of these things listed here requires great strength and great reliance on Jesus to be these things. It, require, it requires great strength to be these things, not weakness. In the world that you and I live in, these things look like weakness. These things are not valued in our culture. If, if you are this way, the, the idea is that people are going to just run over you, right? That you, you've got to stand up for yourself and be a person that is intimidating, a person that people take seriously. And if you're going to be that way, you've got to be not what this list says, but something else altogether. You've got to be intimidating. And so I want you to discuss for a few minutes, just do questions one through four at your table. Look with me now at verse 13. And yeah, this is, a, this is a hard verse to read. Look at verse 13. It says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, mu you also must forgive. 
I love the Bible because the Bible is a very honest book. The Bible acknowledges that there's going to be people in the body of Christ that you just have issues with. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. The Bible does not turn a blind eye to sin. It does not act like you should be this just happy-go-lucky, always joyful person and act like things aren't bad. The Bible is an honest book because it says, yes, in spite of the fact that someone has hurt you in sometimes horrific ways, we're still commanded to forgive. And it's, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a multiple choice, and forgive is like letter E. It is the only option. It is the only choice that we have. And you might say, okay, well, okay, that sounds good, but that's, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I've been through. It's just, it's just too painful. I can't. I can't forgive. It's too painful. And I understand that. But the thing that we forget is that forgiveness is always painful, isn't it? The cross proves that. Forgiveness is always painful, and there's going to be times where it feels like you are hanging on a cross. Forgiveness is always painful. It was painful for Jesus, and it's going to be painful for us when we forgive someone. When I was in college, you guys know the, the story. I, I was working at a church. Um, I was living in a house with a bunch of guys, and um, we had this really uh, big internship program at the church I worked at, and um, there was, we had to put rules on things because we're stupid college people. And so one of the rules that we had, and I have, to, I have the same rule today for my interns, and it makes sense, is I don't allow any like male intern or a, a female intern to hang out alone with opposite sex students like that are in high school. And the reason for that is because, um, you know, they're 19, 20 years old. There's a possibility, a small possibility that someone who's still in high school might like them and that they might like that person, right? Only a couple of years apart. And so just to main, maintain integrity, make sure we're doing things the right way and no one's crossing any boundaries, that's a rule that I have. And it was taught to me by the guy that mentored me in Arlington because that was the rule that we had. And so this one guy came into our house, and I won't mention names, but this one guy came into our house, and he, I could tell from the beginning this guy was not on the up and up. I had questions about this guy myself. I just wasn't quite sure what it was. But he was there for a few months, and he starts gaining popularity among the students. He's about 20 years old at the time. He's interning. He's working with um, about 40 students that go to the local Christian school there in Arlington. And in a matter of time, it was very evident that there was a girl that he liked in the youth ministry. And all of us were thinking, like, we got to watch this. And over time, we start to discover that he is meeting this girl and, you know, getting physical with her. And not just violating the rule of don't hang out with them, but going way beyond that. And so this comes to light, and we let the youth pastor know, and he has this big meeting where he comes into the house, he's going to confront this guy, and I'm in, there in the house um, myself with mother, the other interns. And so Joe walks into the house, we have this meeting with this guy, and I kid you not, everything in me wanted to pummel this guy. Like, I'm one of these people that wish I had a sister so I could have beaten guys up that tried to date them. That's, that's me. I have this very protective nature when it comes to girls in those situations. And so everything in me wanted just to, to pummel this guy. So he was kicked out of the house that day. 
Like he had to pack his bags that day. Sorry, you're gone. You're out, right? And I didn't see this guy for months. But it was almost like the absence of him not being there just made me like seethe with hatred and bitterness. And just like I really feel like at that time in my life, I hated this guy more than anything. And it, I just felt it. I just felt it. And it was hard to forgive. It was really, really hard to forgive. And I dealt with a lot of anger and bitterness toward that guy because of it. But what's interesting about this word when it says, bearing with one another, do you know what the Greek actually means in this verse? It means to hold yourselves back from one another. That's what it means, which is a great image because that's exactly how I felt with this guy. It's basically saying, don't do what you really feel like doing. And there are times when you want to jump on someone and hurt them, right? And so the image that you see here is that Christ bears with us so that we can bear with other people. And if we're a people that say we've been forgiven by Jesus, how can we not extend that forgiveness to someone else? I know most of you think whenever you forgive someone, you think that you are setting that person free from the consequences but it feels like you're putting yourself in some kind of a box or prison, right? You feel like they're getting away with it, and I'm now being restrained. I feel like I'm being put into a prison of sorts because I'm forgiving that person. But I want you to see something this morning. That's not true at all. It sets both of you free. It sets them free to experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, and it sets you free from a life of bitterness and resentment. To not forgive is to put yourself in a prison of bitterness and resentment. Forgiving someone has this sanctifying effect on you, and it makes you more like Jesus. Forgiveness is not optional. It's a command. It's a command. I also know that many of you just wait around for forgiveness to happen magically, don't you? We all do this. We're like, well, if I... If I just feel it in my heart spontaneously, then maybe I'll forgive that person. But if I don't feel it, then I'm not going to forgive them. And we just kind of wait for it to magically happen. But when Paul says it here, this is a command. This is a command. And I want you to know this morning that the issue of forgiving those who wrong you is going to be the primary way that you stay rooted in community. That is going to be the primary way that you stay rooted is your ability to reflect on the cross, reflect on Christ, his forgiveness for you, and apply that to your life, and you extend that same forgiveness towards other people. I know that for the seniors in the room, when you leave here in the coming weeks, you're going to be tempted to go and just you might plug into a church and just attend the Sunday morning service. You, you might do that. Many of you may not do that, may not even do that. But my encouragement to you is that instead of just going and plugging into a service and just attending a service, because here's the deal. Sitting in a service is easy, right? You sit, you stand, you sing, you hear someone preach, you write down profound things, then you walk out, and that's it. There's not much else required. There's no messiness of relationship. There's no messiness and drama of community. And, and some of you say, well, that's why I want to do that, 
right? But if you, if you do just that, listen, if you do just that, you are going to forego the chance to see the gospel and Christ's grace and mercy come out of you in ways that would not be possible if all you did was sit in a service. And so because Christ bears with us, we can bear with other people. In light of this, it's, it's really amazing how, how rare it is that we forgive in the church, isn't it? In light of the fact that we've been forgiven so much, it's really rare to think that, it's really rare that we actually forgive people and have that as the only option. I forgive whoever's in the sound booth. My ears are still ringing on that. Ow. Now my ear's itching inside. This is weird. So in light of this, listen, listen. In light of this, it's really amazing how rare it is that we forgive in the body of Christ, isn't it? In fact, uh, some months ago... Um, there was a girl that, that goes here sometimes, and she said to me, um, you know, I wish on Wednesday nights we didn't do those breakouts in the breakout rooms. And I said, well, that's kind of the point of Wednesdays is to do community groups. And she said, well, I don't like the girls in there. And I'm like, well, so we're just going to be individuals, just sit in a chair, listen to someone speak, and walk out. That's how we're going to do it here? That's, that's not community, Right? And so I acknowledge that we're going to have fewer people who want to do that because of the nature of it is just different, and it's harder, and it's awkward, and it's just it's more dramatic, right? It's more chaotic. I understand that. But to me, what we gain from that is better than just having a crowd of people that just come in, take in from the stage, and walk out the door. I know that's easier, more efficient, less messy, but that's kind of the point is it puts you in situations where yeah, it's going to be hard, and you got to deal with her, and you got to deal with him. That's kind of the point of this. And one thing I want you to understand, guys, is um, community is actually easier in high school, I think, than as you move on. You might be surprised to hear that. But what I mean by that is, when else in life are you going to spend all day, every day, with 2,000 of your closest friends, right? And if you can't do community in high school, then how are you going to do it when you get out of high school and into college? If you can't function as a healthy person and learn the pattern of forgiveness in high school, how can you do it once you get out of high school? Because some of you have this idea. You think, I can't wait till this part of life is over because it's so full of drama I can't wait till I get on to the next thing. And that kind of person, I guarantee you, will not stay rooted in community because they think everyone else is the problem. They don't realize that they, they own part of that themselves. And you will not stay rooted in community if that's your attitude while you're here in high school. Now here's the hard part. In verse 14, Paul says something in addition to all this. He says it's not just enough to put up with and tolerate each other, but 
because that falls short of what Christ actually does for us. In verse 14, he says, And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And so Paul has the, or Jesus has the nerve to expect us not just to do these things as an activity, but to actually love people. He has the nerve to actually say, yeah, you should do all this out of love. All this should be under an umbrella of actually loving people. And this is actually a command. And I know that many of us, when we think of the word love, again, we think of it happening magically, right? We think always in in, in the sense of like romantic love. So we think of, we apply that in a sense to our friendship and think, well, I just like who I like as friends. I can't help that. I'm not going to try to love someone. I'm not going to, that's not a command. It's just, yeah, those that you can tolerate, those that you like, just be in communion with them, but not other people. And so this is a, a command to love, actually love people and do all this out of love. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins? I'll give you an example. Most of you guys put up with a lot from your best friends, right? I mean, your best friends still wrong you. They still do mean things to you. They still make mistakes. They still sin against you. But the reason why you put up with that is because you love them, right? And so love covers over a multitude of sins because when you truly love someone you're always going to be inclined towards forgiveness you're always going to be okay with forgiving someone that you have affection and love for the same is true with my own kids i mean my kids are three and are almost three and almost six and when my son messes up which happens a lot and he says to me you know dad i'm sorry will you forgive me Am I going to forgive him? Yeah, because love covers a multitude of sins. When you truly love someone, forgiveness comes more naturally. Look at verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, when he says that you should admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, this does not mean life should be a musical for you. This does not mean that you break out in song just in regular everyday life situations. But what it does mean, there should be this thankfulness that comes out of you just naturally as a result of what's been done for you, and that should be a consistent part of of who you are as a Christian. But I want you to focus just on one phrase. He says in verse 16, he says, admonish one another. You cannot admonish one another. Look what it also says, you should teach one another. Most of you think of Dave does the the teaching, the leaders do the teaching, we do the receiving. What he says in this verse is opposite, right? He says, you teach one another. You admonish and teach each other. And this should be happening in community. And I will tell you that that exhortation and that verse can't happen 
if all you're doing is going and sitting in a service on Sunday morning and that's it. It can't happen there. Yeah, Gary's teaching you and does a great job. But you can't be admonishing and teaching each other if you're not involved in community. And this is why we stress this so much here at Overflow. Because in order for you to have a faith that is sustained over the long haul, you've got to be a person who is rooted in community. And for those that are graduating, your temptation is going to be, as a result of sin and drama and chaos in the body of Christ, your temptation is going to be to pull away or to isolate just by going to a Sunday morning service, and that's it. And I want to encourage you this morning that be to the church what Jesus is to you, and that is to put up with and bear with each other and forgive each other and stay rooted in community for the rest of your life. Let's go ahead and finish with some discussion.